Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lots. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now as a reminder, this is the one who's anointed speaking, that I. For I, the Lord, love justice. For I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, they, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now our final reading, Hebrews chapter 1. We're thinking today about the doctrine of the Trinity and reflecting upon how the Old Testament teaches this doctrine. Let's hear now our final reading, Hebrews chapter 1. 
Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, also, He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, to get today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me in your Psalter hymnal to pages 875 and 876. We arrive today at Lord's Day 8. I will ask the question. Please join with me responding with the answer. Question 24, how are these articles divided? Into three parts, God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. I intended to remind us that that is referring to the Apostles' Creed, divided in that Trinitarian structure of Father, Son, then Spirits. Now question 25, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. May God add his blessing to the teaching of his word. As we come now to our uh, catechism ser uh, teaching and sermon, remind you that what that last answer said was that that's the teaching of the word of God. Not just the New Testament, but the Word of God. And as we come to begin to think about the fact that the God of the Bible is the Trinity, we also want to make sure we understand that all the Bible teaches that God is the Trinity. Now, as we think about the Trinitarian doctrine, I've elected not to go too deeply into this today because we just did a lot of that last year in the Athanasian Creed, but just as by way of reminder, 
when we think about God in his oneness, we are thinking about him as divine essence or substance or nature. There is one, one nature. God in his nature, his essence, includes what we call incommunicable attributes, attributes that, of which we do not share in analogy. So, for example, that God is, um, he is immense. Uh, he has no bounds, in other words. And no bounds by way of time or space. He's unbounded. Um, we think about God as, you know, that, that relates to his infinity. We can think as well about his being self-existent or his aseity. That he does not rely upon anything or anyone else for his existence. We do. But he does not. He simply is. He is necessary. We are contingent. So there are these attributes we call incommunicable because we don't see a creaturely analogy in ourselves of these things. Then there are also communicable attributes whereby we see um, some analogy like God is merciful, gracious, loving, good, wise. We might not have wisdom like God has it, but there's an analogy within us. We call those communicable attributes. Those relate to the divine essence. The divine essence. Now, subsisting in that divine essence or existing in that divine essence are three distinct persons. The Father, who is unbegotten. The Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father alone. And the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Those three distinct persons share that one divine essence. How does that work? We are at the point of mystery. So, if you'd like more on that, contact me later. I can send you some former sermon audio. But what today we are concerned with is the fact that the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, is God's self-revelation. And because God is the triune God, that means that the entire Bible is the revelation of God as Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that all the Bible is equally as clear, but it does mean that the entire Bible teaches the Trinitarian doctrine. We begin, uh, actually one thing I want to clarify before we begin here. It's important to, to clarify the question I'm asking. The question is this. Does the Old Testament teach it? I'm not asking the question, did the Jews understand it in the first century? Okay? I'm asking the question, did the Bible teach it? Not, did they understand it? Because a lack of understanding is commonplace. And it is because of our sin that we don't understand as we should. The Bible clearly taught Messiah, but the Jews, on the whole, rejected it, right? So that's the question I'm asking here today is, does the Old Testament teach it? Not, did the first century Jews understand it? So first, we turn to Isaiah 61, which you just read, verses 1 through 11. Recall how Isaiah, within those latter chapters, has various what we call servant songs. I think it's best to understand the servant in these songs 
as the one who's singing, and he is, or, and also about whom the song is being sung. It's kind of a both and. And he is really a greater Moses. A greater Moses. Moses was the original servant. And now in Isaiah's prophecy, many years after the death of Moses, we learn that a greater servant is coming and his person is embedded in Isaiah with a greater exodus. Okay, these two things go together. A greater Moses with a greater exodus. One of the servant songs you're probably familiar with is chapter 53. That suffering servants. There are also other servant songs that describe him as a, a royal figure as well. Something we see here in our text today. <clears throat> it is in this context of servant songs that we find chapter 61. Here we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me at the very beginning of that text. Christ quotes this in Luke 4 and says, Hey guys, it's me. That was me speaking back then, and I'm here now to fulfill it. Isaiah 61 is my song. <coughs> I'll be fine. In this, uh, um, in this we, we read that first person singular, I, me. He is distinct from the Holy Spirit. He's also distinct at some parts of chapter 61 from Jehovah. There's the servant, there's the spirit, there's Jehovah. But then we note in that reading what happened at verse 8. I paused our reading there. Because all of a sudden, the singer, the one anointed, says, For I, the Lord, love justice. All of a sudden... The servant says, I'm the Lord. All capital letters. I am Jehovah. But then, in verse 10, he's back to being distinct from the Lord. <coughs> so, in a shadowy sort of way, we see that Trinitarian doctrine emerging, even back in Isaiah 61. We come next to Psalm 110, in Christ speaking, in Matthew chapter 22. Understand the main message of Psalm 110. Messiah would become the priest king after the order, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. In Christ, as he quotes from that psalm, he's exposing the fact that the scribes of his time lacked understanding. They didn't understand it. But then he shows them that the Old Testament teaches it. He asks them that question. About whom was David speaking? David is the author of that psalm. And David wrote, The Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, David's Lord. Now, Everyone in Israel knew. The scribes knew. The Psalm 110 was describing Messiah. But they overlooked a very inconvenient fact. That in the Hebrew text, there's what you could call a little apostrophe. And that says, the Lord says to, not, it's not, um, 
that makes it say, my Lord, instead of the Lord said to the Lord, the little apostrophe says, my Lord, my Lord, which means David was bowing the knee to Messiah. Completely unheard of for a father to bow his knee to his son. Even crazier, a great-great-great-grandfather to great-great-grandson. Even crazier, the greatest king of Israel, David himself, to bow the knee to anyone apart from Jehovah. Oh wait, who is this son that he calls my Lord? Psalm 110 is not explicit, but is teaching something by way of implication. It's taught there, even though the Jewish leaders did not understand it. There is some sense of plurality in the Godhead, which we understand on this side of the cross to be the three persons who subsist in that one divine essence. Third and finally, we think about Hebrews 1 and the Psalter. The basic argument of Hebrews chapter 1 is just very simple. Stop worshiping angels. Just don't do it. They are just servants. They lack the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. The way that the author of Hebrews gets there is a very reformed way. Let's just go to the Psalms. Let's sing a bunch of Psalms. Let's do it, people. I had you know, not really appreciated how many Psalms you find here in chapter 1. There's six of them. He doesn't quote anything else. He just quotes from six Psalms. First in verse 5 from Psalm 2. The Lord never called the angels his begotten son. That's language that is so unique to the biblical revelation. Something's going on there is what is being suggested. The same thing with the quote from Psalm 89 at the end of, Psalm, of verse 2. That there's a mysterious father-son relationship that's occurring between the Lord and the son of David. Again, what's going on there? We must ask ourselves. Not explicit, but implicit. In verse 6, there's a quote from Psalm 97 where the joy of the earth is being sung because the king was arriving in Psalm 97. And then in the midst of this celebration and feast at the arrival of the king in judgment, guess what the psalmist says? All the angels, hey, worship this arriving king. Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 8 quotes from Psalm 45, where Messiah is directly called God, Elohim. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 45 is a messianic psalm. It was not disputable and debatable amongst the first century Jews. He's the conquering warrior. He's coming as the bridegroom. Your throne, O God. Whose throne? Messiah's throne. His throne. Verse 10 quotes Psalm 102. This is a hope-filled lament concerning the deteriorating world around us. 
they felt it back then. They looked at the culture and said, oh, it's going, so you know what. And Psalm 102 cries out with hope. For whom? For Messiah. And then it goes to a point of saying, Messiah created, and he will bring the heavens to an end before he renews them. Who is this Messiah who brings creation to an end to renew it, to change it? Like one might change a garment. And finally, in verse 13, Hebrews 1 quotes from Psalm 110, which we've already addressed. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, from just this sample, this survey, the writer to the Hebrews is taking us by the hand to say, hey, the entire Psalter, it's about the triune God. You might not have noticed it. You might not see it. But the book of the Psalms is a song that reveals unto us the God who is Trinity. Because you don't come to know Messiah rightly without also coming to know the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, we learn today and have a lens to put upon our eyes that as we pick up our Bibles and read from Genesis through Malachi, we are reading the self-revelation, not merely of God, but of the triune God. We must expect to find the Trinity there. Not in all high definition, but the God who is Trinity is revealed throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. Not just Matthew through Revelation, but Genesis through Malachi. Because it is how God reveals Himself. And God reveals Himself rightly and truly. And who is the God who reveals Himself? He is one divine essence in which subsists three distinct persons. And so... Beloved Christian, let us be intent upon seeing the God who is Trinity in the pages of Scripture. And not just to see that, but then to respond to that call of the angels. Let all God's angels worship Him. Amen.